0: welcome to the bagwell center podcast this podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the bagwell center for the study of markets and economic opportunity at kennesaw state university the bagwell center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation entrepreneurial activity economic prosperity and improved human welfare through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu/econop. Welcome or welcome back. Um, this is the third session of the
1: Bagwell Center's Symposium on the Economics of ride Sharing. Our featured speaker is Dr. John List. He's a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. Where he's been on their faculty since 2005. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and a PhD in economics from the University of Wyoming. He has made pioneering contributions to the literature on the use of field experiments in economics. Dr. List has published over 250 peer-reviewed academic articles in leading journals. Google Scholar identifies 71,000 citations of his work, including 11 separate articles with over 1,000 citations each. Based upon his research, the uh, REPEC repository presently ranks him as the fifth most influential economist in the world, and in 2015, ranked him as the most influential economist out of the 40,000 who earned their PhDs since 1995. He's written two best-selling books, The Y-Axis, Hidden Motives, and the Undiscovered Economics of Everyday Life, which was published in 2013, and more recently, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale, which was published in 2022. In addition to his academic positions, he served as senior economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisers during the administration of George W. Bush from May 2002 through July of 2003, he currently serves as Chief Economist for Walmart, and he was previous, and of uh, relevance for today's event, he was previously the Chief Economist for both Uber and Lyft. So please join me in welcoming Dr. List to Ben State University.
2: Thanks for having me. That was very kind. <clears throat> that was very kind. Thank you for that intro. As you can tell, it I can get Chief Economist positions, but I have a hard time keeping them. Um, So I I did serve as Chief Economist at Uber for two years and I quit on a Friday and I started the next Monday as a Chief Economist at Lyft. Um, Thankfully they don't have uh, these uh, these compete laws like they probably should but I had to leave my brain at Uber when I went to Lyft and then I was at Lyft for four years and um, I decided to quit last March and I started May 1st at Walmart, and I've been the chief economist at Walmart since then. So during the Q&A, we can talk a little bit about that, should you please. Um, But I wanna focus my 45 minutes on what I think we can learn from Rideshare. Now, if you were in the panel, I tried to make clear that I think one of the greatest innovations of our day is Rideshare. Because it uses something very simple, prices, to clear the market. It's what economists always say is an efficient clearing mechanism, prices. That's what's behind all of our economic models. You have price going up and down and quantity demand and quantity supply change. And they end up converting or conversing, let's say, to some equilibrium where demand and supply crosses. Now, that beautiful from an economist's point of view. that's exactly what rideshare does. A lot of you probably are not old enough to have witnessed some of the bad stuff with taxis, like when you fly into McCarran Airport to go to Las Vegas for a weekend, you stand there waiting an hour and 25 minutes for a cab. That's waiting time clearing the market. You don't have that anymore. We have prices. OK. So today, what I want to talk about is what have we learned? And I'm going to talk mostly about my research that I've been doing at Uber and Lyft. Some of it is public. Some of it is not. Okay, I'm going to start by just quickly summarizing some studies from the demand and supply side. Then I'm going to focus probably like 15 minutes each on a study in gender economics. And then I'm going to go to behavioral economics. And then I'm going to go to the economics of crime. So I've chosen these to try to have a broad swath of something that you will be interested in hearing about. Okay, and if I miss something, we can talk about that at the end. Okay, and then I'll end with uh, some concluding remarks. Okay, so here are some examples, and I don't know if any of you, how many of you listen to this Freakonomics podcast? Raise your hand if you've listened to that. Okay, a few of you. Do you hear the apologies? One that I did with Dubner? Okay, So there's a story behind why did Uber invent apologies for when they give you a bad trip. It all started because I got a bad trip. And I yelled at the CEO and said, you know what, TK? The worst thing is I did not even get an apology. And he said, John, we haven't gotten to that yet. And I said, we have now. So that ends up being an academic paper. It's the first one. The second one is value of time. So when I worked in the government, a lot of policies that are economically significant have to undergo a benefit-cost analysis. And within that benefit-cost analysis, we have to place a value on time. If we we make a bridge, we save people time. If we make a a fourth lane in in an interstate, we save people time. You can say, well, how do we value that time? That's what that second study is after. Because what's interesting in economic theory, there's something called weak complementarity, that after you have that in place, all you need are two elasticities. How sensitive people are to price and how sensitive people are to time. And then the ratio of those, that's the value on your time. That's what that second paper does. The third paper is about tipping. so. If you've used Uber for a long time, you know that they did not used to have tipping. My group was responsible for rolling out tipping on the Uber app in the summer of 2017. So I did it as a nationwide field experiment to explore not only scaling, but also why do people tip. Okay, that's the the third paper. The last one, I can't make these public just yet. This is on rewards and loyalty. Once somebody takes an Uber or Lyft, how do you keep them loyal to your product? Okay, so that's what those two studies are going to be. That's the demand side example, supply side. So a lot of times people say that ride share gives workers flexibility. It does. You can work when and where you want. So we want to try to value that flexibility. That's what the first paper does. The second paper is essentially about how market aggregates move when we add things like tipping. And this is like an Econ 101 story built in an econometric model. The third one is uh, very behavioral on income targeting. A lot of times people argue that workers target a certain income. And after they reach that, they quit. That's very important because that's a, it's a very weird supply curve. So that third paper is a nationwide field experiment on income targeting. Now, the last one is using some machine learning to look at various techniques within experimental economics. Okay, So all these are on the supply side. OK, let's get to some action. Gender pay gap. What do you think? Do male and female drivers earn the same amount per hour when they work at Uber? What do you think? Should, right? They're all paid the same time and distance formula. Makes sense, right? Okay. So when you look at gender, pay differences, the economic literature starts with whenever there are observed differences, they say, well, it's probably because of human capital, different education levels, or people take different majors across male and female cohorts. Some people say, well, it might be labor market attachment. Uh, Women tend to drop out of labor markets more than men. So that causes a gender pay gap. Some people might say it's discrimination. Okay, That's in the formal labor market. There are decades of studies in economics exploring gender pay gaps. Now, where I focused on are differences in preferences between men and women. Men and women might have differences in the competitiveness of the wage contract, men and women might have differences in risk aversion. Okay? But we all know the world's changing, so let's talk about rideshare. Claudia Golden had a really interesting quote. She's a leader, she's a Harvard professor who's a leader on gender pay gaps. Here's what she said about the gender pay gap and what must happen in labor markets for it to be entirely exercised. Changes in the labor market, how jobs are structured, Enhanced temporal flexibility, the gender gap in pay would be considerably reduced and might vanish altogether if firms did not have an incentive to reward individuals to work longer hours. Okay. So when I started this project, I thought Claudia is going to be right. I'm going to look at the mounds and mounds of data and men and women drivers will make the exact same amount of money. Okay, right? There are no negotiated wages. There's no job flexibility penalty. No convex returns to hours. There's what the data say. You and I are both surprised. The data say that men earn 7% more per hour compared to women as Uber drivers. So then I looked across a long period of time and said, well, maybe that's just an outlier. Doesn't look like an outlier to me. Every time period, men earn more than women. I then looked across cities, and there are differences. But still, in every city, men earn more than women. What's going on here? Somebody help me. What do you think? Mm-hmm. The t- this was before tipping. Okay, but you are right. Um, women earn about 13% more in tips. That only takes out about 1% of the 7% difference. By the way, that, that makes it go smaller, not larger. Because women receive more tips than men. Yeah. Especially young women from older men. Uh, uh, and that's in the data if you want to look at that. And you can, do, you can use your own theories why that might be true. Um, but I'll tell you what, as uh, female drivers get older, by the time they reach 50, they get the exact same tips from male customers as male drivers do, who are 50. So use your imagination about that. Yes? Uh, I believe that women operate more on emotionality, feelings, and men are more logical in that aspect, so the reactions of
1: driving and, for example, an accident happens, the reactions
2: will vary. That might be true, but remember, you're just paid time and distance. So if women slow down and just stop for like a half hour, if they have somebody in their back seat, they're making money. Uh, essentially, both genders do, but like, why like the pay gap is like different. Yeah. OK, that's a conjecture. Another conjecture.
1: Good. There's a difference in personality between the men and women who pick that job. Like maybe you have a certain type of male.
2: Like male but w- like. Why do they make more money though?
1: No, that's what I'm saying. Maybe there's a bigger pool of males who will do that job than a smaller pool of women. It's like more of a, I'm not to say last resort, but yeah. I think you have fewer women choosing that than you do men.
2: You are absolutely right. But in that case, if only 5% of the women do and 80% of the men, if, if you're sorting according to economic theory, it should be the 5% best women. So it should be the opposite result if like, sorting is important. Okay. So where I went is I said it's got to be discrimination. It's got to either be customer side discrimination. You see that there's a female and you say, no, I'm not going to take that trip. Or it's dispatch side discrimination. So we looked at the data. It's neither. Okay, so this didn't turn out to be a discrimination paper. Now, we ended up having mounds and mounds of data, of course. And what's interesting about the Uber data is it's rich enough that I can completely unpack that 7% pay gap with three variables. Okay, let's talk about those three variables are. Fact number one, experience matters a lot. So here's what I mean by that. Hourly earnings here rolling number of trips that you take there. Okay, You can see that early on, they make about 2150 and then it grows to about 25. That's just a fact in the data. Experience matters. Fact two, men have more experience than women. So you can see a lot of females drop out early. So from these data, we developed a program to try to keep female drivers on the platform Longer because of the data that we discovered here. Okay, and as you can see, men, there are a lot of men who are really experienced. Okay? It's also the case that besides working more weeks, men work more per week than women. So it was set up here a few times, a lot of people are, you know, working part time or, or, or working fewer weeks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this gives you lifetime trips completed over weeks, and as you can see, men just dominate women. They're more full-time drivers. Okay. So here's the first result then. How do we unpack this? Where and when to drive is about 25 percent of the pay gap. Women cannot drive at bar time because it's a constraint. They don't feel safe. Women have more constraints during the day. They have to take Johnny to school or take Jane to soccer. That's morning and afternoon commute. Those are very valuable times. So where and when is stacked against women in the data. Now, the thing that's not stacked against them is this thing, which is a fact in our data. As a driver, you get a trip request. You don't have to take it. Women accept nearly every trip. So you can say, well, why isn't that good? You're making money. It doesn't make sense to drive across town, drive a half hour to pick somebody up for a five-minute trip. It's a totally terrible trip for you because you're only paid when somebody's in your back seat. You're not paid for the time that it takes to go and get them. Men strategically reject trips. Okay, That's 50% of the pay gap. What do you think the other 50% is? the need for speed. Men drive faster than women. Men drive faster so they complete more trips per unit of time. That's 50% of the reason for the pay gap. So here in the Uber data, it's preferences and constraints that are causing the gender pay gap. It's not any of the other things from the formal literature. You know, why can I say that? Because when I look at people's driving habits, when they're not driving on Uber and Lyft, guess what the distribution looks like? Identical. So this isn't an Uber and Lyft driver thing. This is a male-female thing, Okay, That's study number one. Study number two, law of demand. What's the law of demand? Who's an econ major in here? Somebody help me? Everyone's looking down. Law of demand.
0: How much, basically, how many people want this product?
2: OK. When price goes up, what happens to quantity demanded? Let's ask it like that. Demand goes down. Quantity demanded goes down when price goes up. That's our law. Right? We're not like the physical sciences. We don't have cool quantitative laws. We have cool qualitative laws. Law of demand, law of supply, law of comparative advantage. So what I wanna go after here is, we don't oftentimes talk about what are the underpinnings for the law of demand. So let's start with this. And I'm glad that somebody brought this up during the last one. When you see these two prices, do you think you're gonna react differently? If you get 794 versus 793, are you gonna respond differently? No. What about if you get 799 versus eight? Why? What? That's called left digit bias. Okay, we learn about this in our psychology class and behavioral economics. People respond differently when you cross a threshold because humans tend to focus on the leftmost digit. Okay, so I went into Lyft's data. Now we moved from Uber to Lyft. I went into Lyft's data and said, well, if left digit bias is real, I wonder if the pricing algorithm is picking it up, because you all told me 793 versus 794 is different than 799 versus eight. So I did this plot. This is, <laughs> that's, folks, what this tells you is that ten dollars I have about 2.2 million observations. This is what the algorithm at Lyft is giving people for prices. It's uniform. The, the machine is not recognizing that this is happening. So maybe it's not happening in our data. So I decided to take a look. And this this paper is titled, Unveiling the Law of Demand. I decided, we all know this stuff, I decided to look at standard trips and shared trips. Standard you take by yourself, shared you take with other people. That's the one that's supposed to reduce pollution and congestion. Right, that, that was the thing that was going to save, save us essentially now i can 't talk a lot about prices here because I, I was in part responsible for the algo, but I can tell you that ten percent of prices on Uber and Lyft are always experimental prices. The machine is constantly experimenting to try to figure out demand elasticities and cross price elasticities okay so that 's always happening behind the scenes so What I did is I went and got 612 million sessions. Okay, a session is when you get out your phone and say, I wanna take a lift to the airport. Give me a price quote and a time quote. That's a session. Okay, so I went from February to August 2019. Here's your quantity data that you wanted. Uh, 612 million sessions. Here's what you find, you know, the average. There are some markets that just have standard Some markets have standard and shared. So just to give you a sense, when you open a session, on average, about 60% of those actually turn into a trip. The other 40%, the person says, I don't want to take it. And we don't know where they go. They could go to Uber. They could go to a taxi. They could go to a train. They just don't take us. Okay. So what's interesting now is if i just focus between 1096 and 1103 here are the conversion rates that's amazing right it's like wait a second here it's 50.2 50.4 this is where the price is and then it gets to 11 and it drops down is that real is that really in the data so remember, this is how the machine prices. This is what the demand curve looks like in conversion. So you, you can say, you know, we go here to 15, all the, all the way up to 15.99, then 16 down there. It goes up, boom, 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 boom. That's a figure worth a thousand words, or maybe even more. Shared the exact same thing. There is a huge effect at every integer. OK. This is another way to put it, standard conversion. I collapse everything at the prices. This is 0, 99, above. You can just see, in the, this is the cross-price elasticity. It even happens in cross-price elasticities. Left-digit bias. So I can strategically price standard to move people to shared, should I want. OK. So you could think about, well, can you get a little more structural? And what I'm doing here is I just put a simple model. Think about the price of five fifty-three. Um, this is how much attention you're going to put on the 5 This is how much attention you're going to put on the $0.53. Cents. So I can take these mounds and mounds of data and try to estimate theta. So theta you can think about is the left digit bias in pricing. So in intuition, if theta is 0.5, quantity demanded drops by the equivalent of 50 cents with that one penny change. So I take all those data and I estimate theta, and I end up finding it's about 0.5. What that suggests is that 50% of the reason that law of demand holds is because of that one penny change. The other 99 cent change over the dollar is responsible for the other 50% of the law of demand. That's how powerful this bias is in our data. So then I said, well, let's do a field experiment to see how much money I can make for Lyft. So we ran this experiment for two months, and we randomized across 177 million sessions. But how many of you have taken a Lyft or Uber in the last five years? Raise your hand. Okay. I want to thank all of you for being one of my experimental subjects. (laughs) Thank you for helping me learn about the world, Okay, Because that's exactly what's happening here, right? It's not creepy that I can't put your name on an action, but I can talk in aggregate. I can talk about roots downtown Atlanta to the airport, downtown Atlanta, Kansas whatever. Um, I can talk about elasticities that way. So in this particular experiment, we have six groups. And we're just randomly putting you in one of those groups when you open up a session. Okay, The control is business as usual. We're taking some people standard price down, shared down. That's 10% of the sample. And you can see all of this. Okay, it's a massive experiment, 177 million observations. Now, from the naturally occurring data, we predicted in each of these treatments, this is how profit should change. That's how profit actually changed. So the forecast wasn't, from the naturally occurring data, wasn't that far off. You can see we made a ton of money. um, And it wasn't that far off from the naturally occurring data. This is why I said in the panel, we know how to turn things off and on if should we want. This just shows you just using left digit bias, not even using price elasticities of demand. Now, the value to lift here, um, over lunch, we can talk about what x was since this is being recorded. Um, but it's tens and tens of millions of dollars per quarter. Um, now, we, I don't think that based on theta of 0.5, we didn't have the optimal pricing algorithm. With that level, you really should end all prices at 99. and That's saying that people won't change their behavior, which they will if every price is 99 cents. Um, th- this is like 10X. But, but again, we know that Uber would find out, and uh, customers would notice, so it might not be as lucrative to have everything, of course. Okay. Now what's kind of interesting is, Lyft and Uber are super sophisticated, but their machines did not pick up left digit bias. That's where we as economists, psychologists, social scientists can really add value. Because we bring theory and understanding that can be tested in these settings when machine cannot pick it up. We know that the Uber machine doesn't pick it up either because we take their draws. And they have a, a uniform price distribution, too. So we know they're not picking up left digit bias. Even though when I was at Uber, I said we should do this. Everyone said, no, no, do something else. Work on China. Um, now, what's, what's sort of interesting is this whole literature on the theory and, and welfare implications, this isn't just a, a zero sum game here. This can be welfare enhancing for customers and Lyft or Uber. OK, just because of the way that you're shuffling people around the different services. If it's only one service, it is a zero sum game. But when you have multiple, you can have win-win situations. OK? Let's talk about economics of crime. Boss, how much time do I have left to talk about crime? So let's see. You have
1: 17 minutes until the Q&A is All right,
2: all right. Has anyone heard of this paper? This paper was ju- just released last week, right? Um, the paper that we just talked about has not been released yet. OK, so the, the left digit bias is still undergoing formal approval. It's what happens a lot of times when you work in organizations. There is a long, long approval. This paper took four, roughly three and a half years, four years to be approved, this crime paper did. Okay, what can you tell me about police discrimination? What do you know? Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Okay, that's a man on an island, (laughs) an island of one. Knowing
1: James, I think
2: that was a joke. What do we know? What are the facts that we know about police discrimination? Somebody help me. What do we all know? Yes, go ahead. Okay, what are the facts around that? Okay, when you're pulled over, when there's a search warrant exercised upon being pulled over or upon the encounter, people are treated differently. That's a fact in the data. And James was just kidding because James knows the facts about the data. But that's an interesting statement now, right? Because I said conditional on being pulled over. That means the two groups have to be isomorphic to make the kind of interpretation we want to make. There could be selection issues here. Okay, keep that in the back of our minds. Now, this paper... (laughs) The title gives it away. Um, High frequency location data shows that race affects the likelihood of being stopped. The likelihood of being stopped. That's something we never ever see, do we? We don't see the actual crimes that are committed. We see conditional on getting caught what happens. We don't see the distribution of what people are doing. That's an unobservable, right? We see something that's conditional. How do you think we're going to see the unobservables with lift data? How's, how in the world is that going to happen? It's going to be a magic act, do you think? What do you think? You have the GPS location. You oh, my hard. gosh. I have GPS data every driver has a phone I know how fast every driver is going every moment they are on our platform so I see whether you're speeding or not but now I still need the other side though don't I I need to somehow get access to public data, not really public, private data that should be public on cops pulling people over. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act across a bunch of states. Only one state complied, Florida. So kudos to them for playing ball into helping science. So this paper is about combining GPS data. I see the unobservables. And then seeing on the same road, at the same time, speeding the same amount, do whites and people of color get pulled over at the same rate? And do they get the same fines for the level of speeding that we observed? The denominator problem, that's what's called the denominator problem in the crime literature, right, is now solved with these data. And it's because of the combination of Lyft opening up and a Freedom of Information Act. John, quick question.
0: question. Don't they have this in the platform, like if Lyft driver, he gets stopped, doesn't he this in the platform?
2: No. We only see it because we know that they're stopped for a period of time. Um, and then we, ma- we can match up that stop with the police data. But sometimes they're stopped when they have a flat tire. And unless you have police data, you don't know which is. I mean, you, you could use kind of what you were after. Well, the, the rate of flat tires should be the same, but not, not unless you control for car type. And, and car. But anyway, we don't need to even do all that those, That chicanery. But they don't record it on the app? No, don't record on the app. No. Nope. <laughs> Go ahead. So you don't control for the car? Type. We do. We will in the regression. We'll control for everything. So you don't have a collar and tie? We have everything because when you become a driver, we know everything about your car. Yes. So I, I have all, all of the controls, et cetera, et cetera. But I can see. I give, I give you the answer already. Okay? So let's start here. Traffic stops are the most common cause of police-civilian interaction. Like I totally understand. This is somebody being pulled over for a traffic stop, but that's what escalates. That's what starts. What we've all been observing. Yes, question. So, um, just a little bit of backtracking. Yeah. How, does,
0: how do police observe the race of the driver?
2: Yeah, it's, you just see them drive by and you can see you can see whether they're white or a person of color. that's I like could go outside and watch. Watch that, right? Because like some cars have tints on them. And A- absolutely, absolutely. So we, we control for car type, and uh, every, I don't know if we have tinted glass, but if you have tinted glass, there should be no discrimination, right? That's
0: what I was. Expecting.
2: Yeah. Okay, but look at the title. <laughs> so you're, you're saying, John, you have lower bound estimates, great. I mean, bad for society, but great for my paper, right? Okay. People find minority minority drivers are 3 to 12% more likely to receive a speeding citation, but that's conditional on being pulled over. You don't know the unobservable. Minority drivers are less likely to receive leniency from a ticket. Again, that's that's the stuff that you all know about. That's conditional. Now, the question here is, do the police racially discriminate when enforcing speeding laws? So here are the challenges that I was talking about. And, And the first one is, it's really difficult to handle the selection issue if you don't have the underlying observable of the criminal rates. It's impossible. You, you can't take on that unless you have the right data. And you can just see. If you only pull over the worst offending whites in a distribution of people of color, you're going to be underestimating the degree of discrimination. That's what I think happens in the, in the real world. That's what happens in our data, too. Okay, now the other thing is, is what about differences in offense rates? Remember, we only observe whether you've been pulled over. So we don't know if it's bias or an offense. So we can also then open up the discussion about recidivism. Because remember, recidivism mixes those two. Recidivism is you re-offended and you got pulled over. What we really care about is did you re-offend? Right? So there's bias in recidivism rates too. Okay? So here's how we circumvent it, as was mentioned. We have smartphone, we know exactly your location and speed. We have a Freedom of Information Act with Florida. Okay? Now this is what was asked before: data driver and vehicle characteristics, that's what we're controlling for in the model. Okay? It's not a difficult or novel idea. We all knew that we needed to do this. But once you have the data, you can do it. Okay. So our two approaches, we're going to use two pretty standard, well, one very standard approach, a fixed effects model, and then we're also going to use what's called a double machine learning model, which we don't have to get into. But we're doing those, we're going to get nearly identical results across those two approaches. Okay. Um, Now, we're controlling for all the things you can see. So the thought experiment I want you to think about is, driving down the exact same patch of road, you have a white man and a black man, for example, going the exact same speed. Which one's more likely to get pulled over? Who's likely to get a bigger ticket? That's the question. So we start out by showing when you look at speeding, What's amazing is people always speed. Um, You can see that, and this is white and minority. Probability of speeding is really high. So in this first bucket, zero to nine miles per hour, and we, we cut it at nine, because that's the ticket level in Florida. It goes zero to nine, 10 to 14, 15 to 19. Those are different levels of tickets, and different levels of if you're caught, how many points you lose on your insurance. That's probably the truly A costly thing here, okay? So as you can see, they're statistically the same, but whites do speed a little bit more than minorities. But what's interesting is for every 10,000 hours that you speed, you only pay about $15 in tickets, okay? And it's because most people are speeding at a low rate, zero to nine miles per hour, and you tend not to get pulled over for that unless you're a minority. OK. So first big, let's say the two big results, and this is, this is for both approaches, is fixed effects and DML model. But you really can just look here, and these are the headline results. Minority drivers are 24 to 33% more likely to be stopped than white drivers traveling the same speed with the same car over the same plot of land. Tickets. Minority drivers pay 23 to 34% less. What happens in our data is if you're a white and speeding at, say, 14 miles an hour over, a lot of cops write you a ticket for 8 miles an hour over. If you're a minority and you're going 8 over, some cops write it for 12 over. So they move you across buckets too. And what's also neat in our data is we can see what the cops say is the race of the driver. And I can tell you that they systematically misreport that as well in the data, because we have the ground truth of the race in our data. Okay, So up here just gives you the two differences, and then down here just gives you one bar of difference, and you can see everything's significant. Okay, now alternative interpretations that oftentimes come up is well, officers are considering driving behavior other than speed, like accident rates. They say, well, they're pulling over minorities more because minorities are more likely to get in an accident. Okay, we can test that. Another thing they say is well, officers will pull over minorities more because of recidivism, is what I mentioned before, reoffense rates. They're trying to curb reoffense rates. We can look at that too in our data. So let's take a look, what do you think? Think either of those are gonna have any bite? No. No. Accidents, miles per hour over speed limit, average accidents per 10,000 hours. Okay, you can see up here, really, really rolling, the whites are getting in a lot more accidents, but these are basically isomorphic. It's not, if anything, it goes the other way. Okay, right, these are the differences in the difference and difference coefficients. It's not accidents, OK? How about reoffense rates? What's kind of interesting is this is the point where you get the ticket. They all go down. <laughs> we, we've all, it, how many of you have gotten tickets in here? Raise your hand. You are the best driver in the world for like a few weeks afterwards, right? You never speed. This is what happens in our data, too. They all go way down. We, we don't even track them up, but eventually they go back up. Um, but you can see they're dancing together. Now These are re-offences. Let's be clear on this. This is what we should care about, re-offences. If you looked at recidivism, because of the bias in getting pulled over, it would look like minorities have a higher recidivism rate. But they don't have a higher re-offence rate. And that's important, because when you make these arguments about recidivism, you have to net out the police bias that's there. It Doesn't make sense just to look. But unless you know the ground truth about who's committing crimes, you won't know that. You won't know the bias. Okay, So here you can see the racial differences. Conclusions. We now have the unconditional arrest rate. The denominator or the base case puzzle or problem in the economics of crime in this example is solved. And this all happened because we are able to combine private data with public data to take on what I think is one of the most important social issues of the day. This to me is one of the biggest values socially Of the stuff I do, being chief economist with firms, but the stuff that as academics in general can do, the amount and the wealth of data within private businesses and many governments is enormous. You know, a lot of times people say, Data, that's the new oil. It's not true. It's not true. The real value is in the data refiners. Just like with oil, the real value is the oil refinery. The real value in these data is you have to have some know how and some knowledge on how do I explore these data once I get them. The data refineries are adding true value, and that's where these partnerships, these private public partnerships, I think will continue to thrive. And in the end, look, Lyft and Uber are great. I don't believe that consumer surplus set of papers that are out there. Um, But we know they're adding consumer and producer surplus. But these are sort of the uncounted social values that these companies are giving us. And that's why I say, look, kudos to Uber and Lyft for opening up. Took a long time to get this accepted. Now you can kind of understand, this is pretty sensitive stuff, right, for Lyft to open up and do this and allow this to happen, and now the base Base case problem is, is solved. Okay, so that's where I want to close. I think Generation Next is running field experiments with organizations. And when you think about the low hanging fruit, I mean, I've been working a fair amount on diversity and inclusiveness, but workplace incentives, people talked about labor economics earlier, social structures and networks, it just goes on and on. I put at the bottom here, a paper that I wrote about a decade ago, that's sort of a how to run field experiments and organizations. So if you want a very accessible paper, a lot of you don't know, but the Journal of Economic Perspectives is created for all of you in the room. The papers are written so you can read them and learn what's going on in the frontier. Even though that's what 12 years old, it's still basically frontier. Frontiers don't move as fast in many cases, is what we would like. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. You, you, you couldn't do that, but now you can. So does that help? Yeah. But to say that, but we did that a little bit in the, in the guaranteed prices, and you see left-digit bias in those experiments, too. Okay. Yeah, okay. Great.
1: Well, in the interest of respect every everybody's time, and uh, we'll cut it off there. Thank you, John. A wonderful talk. you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coleskennesawedu slash econop.